Today's scripture reading is found in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 18 and 25 through 26. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and I will announce the verse as we go. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, verse 25, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. Now you can be seated. Well, again, good morning. Hey, if you're new, I want to especially welcome you to the Parks Church. Uh, Kids, we're so glad that you're you're joining us. Some of you are joining us in here for this service. We're we're glad that you're here. Uh, Again, if you're new or unfamiliar with how we do things here at the Parks Church, we preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we spent uh, about 48 weeks going through 1 Samuel, and we are continuing our study in Samuel, going straight into uh, 2 Samuel. And uh, Lord willing, we will finish 2 Samuel uh, by the end of summer, right? And and some of you are doing the math, going 48 on 1st. 
and then second, like, yeah, it, it, it'll work out, trust me. Um, but we're only taking one chapter today, and the, and the reason we're taking one chapter is because of all the chapters in First and Second Samuel, I would argue this is the most important in understanding. This is the most important for us to grasp. And I, I maybe would go as far, kids, maybe I would go even as far to say if you, if you were to pick your top five chapters in all of the Bible, right, in terms of how it, makes, it helps you understand the word of God and who God is and his heart for, for, for his people, um, this should fall into your top five. And maybe for some of you adults, this one might sneak by you a little bit, but hopefully by the, the end of the sermon today, um, you'll understand why I might make a, a claim like that. And one of the reasons I would make a claim like that is because um, of verses that we read all over the pages of Scripture talking about the Son of David, the Messiah being the Son of David. Uh, kids, how many of you ready for Christmas? Right? Christmas? Yeah, raise your hand. It's only seven months away. All right? Seven months away, Christmas. But uh, at Christmas time, we like to use um, a passage of prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And you'll know this one, um, right? It talks about, uh, for unto us a child is born, and it says that his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Some of you heard that, right? You know that. Well, it goes on to say, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now get this. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, right? And we sing songs about that at Christmas, talking about him, uh, the son of David coming and all, all of these things. And what the Old Testament writer and what Matthew, in fact, at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, in setting up the genealogy of Jesus himself would, t- would literally put in there that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Yes, David, right? David. And so what the writers of scripture are telling us is that to understand Jesus, you have to understand who? David. And you have to understand the promise that God made to David. Something would flow from him. Something would come from him. And so uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we get this great promise. But let's, let's dig into the text a little bit. So keep your First uh, and Second Samuel journals, if you have those open, or your Bibles open, because we'll wade through a little bit more than Vivian read uh, this morning. But let's start right off the top here of, of chapter 7, verse 1. And when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So here we see a little bit of a difference than what we had been walking through. Uh, it's, it's not so much this heightened language with war and these battles and these conflicts. Now we get into a time of relative peace with David. He's sitting there in his house. We know from last week that he's, he's in Jerusalem. In verse 2, David, the king, said to Nathan the prophet, okay, See, now I dwell in this house of cedar, but God dwells in that tent. Remember last week, David said, I want to bring the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, back, put it in its rightful place here in Jerusalem to be the center. This is not just going to be a a center of of the people of God, but this is going to be the center of the presence of God here. And so he brings it and he puts it back there. But something he notices in chapter 7, he's like, wait, I live in this incredible palace made of cedar, all this just this finely, and I look down, and God's in this raggedy old tent. And he, he, he maybe goes, there's a problem with this, right? The God of the universe should not, his presence should not dwell in something less than me. So David has a good idea, right? I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build God a house. 
And so look at Nathan the prophet, right? He replies as any good pastor would. Look at it in verse 3. He says, go, David, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, do you remember last week uh, what I said? When is David at his best? When he's what? Yeah, when he's inquiring of the Lord. Notice that David goes, man, I've noticed this. I see this. His first instinct is not to inquire of the Lord, but to go to Nathan and to tell him. And Nathan goes, listen, you should do that, man. You got the resources. You got the ability. It sounds like a good idea to me. Go for it. Except what? Verse 4. The Lord has other plans. Look at it in verse 4. It starts with this word. But. (laughs) Right? The Lord pulls the e-brake on on Nathan and David who are just driving forward, right, to build God a house. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. In verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I think there's a little bit of like sarcasm there, right, from the Lord, like, oh, David, you would build me a house. Oh, oh, you'd build something real nice for me. Well, let's, let's unpack this. You see, Nathan and David and all their good ideas and all their good intentions just got shut down. Why? Why did the Lord shut down David's plan to build him a house? Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, says this, and I think he hits the nail on the head. He says, I think David was just about to cross over a line from being, from being full of God to full of himself. David, riding the crest of fame, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people, and captured the allegiance of all of Israel, he was heading toward success, and he'd begun to think that he could do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. If any of us develops an identity in which God, in God's grace, is less important to who we are than our own action and importance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. Did you hear that? Like, maybe you heard it, but did you understand it? Essentially what Peterson is saying is this, that the Lord is not allowing David to build his house because the Lord is preventing. The Lord knows David's heart. David, the Lord knows the heart, uh, the, the human tendency in all of our hearts to begin to build and construct our own kingdoms. And so the Lord in his grace and in his love is going, David, hold on, slow your roll. I'm not going to allow you to do that. And so hear me, the Lord saying no here is rooted in two reasons. And we don't always get the reasons why God says no or why he clearly isn't for us doing something. But the point of these two reasons that God is about to make is that he doesn't want David, Nathan, Israel, or us to misunderstand God's character, God's nature, and God's heart. God is willing to shut things down so that we won't, we won't obstruct or distract from what he's actually doing. The God who reigns over it all, the God who is sovereign over it all, sees what's actually taking place in Israel. Something David can't, right? Even as an early, there's no way David could have the perspective that God has. There's no way you could have the perspective God has, even though we act like it sometimes, right? And so David, God is going, David, I see with different eyes than you see. 
I see and I understand why you would want to do that, and I believe that your heart was maybe even in the right place, but I'm going to slow you down for just a second. In fact, I'm not even going to allow you to build me a house because I have a bigger reason, a greater purpose. And here it is. The first thing is this, that God wants to reveal to David, to Nathan, to Israel, and to us his true nature. What is the nature of God? This is contained in verses 6 and 7 of the chapter. The nature of God, what's been called here is this incarnational principle, right? You hear the word incarnation a lot at what time? I've already alluded to it. Christmas, right? This isn't just God's nature at Christmas time, even though that's the ultimate picture of the incarnation. God has been incarnational since the book of Genesis. And what I mean by incarnational is that we have a God who comes and is among his people. Look at it in verses 6 and 7. After the Lord says, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Here's what he says. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Do you get what the Lord is saying there? He's like, I never once, as a God who is incarnational among his people, came to those judges who were called to shepherd the people of Israel and go, where's my house of cedar? Where's my palace? God goes, no, because I want you to understand my nature. I want you to understand that I'm a God who is with the people. I'm sharing and I'm walking where they walk. This is a little bit of allusions in your New Testament to Hebrews 4, right? That talks about Jesus as our sympathetic high priest who understands the pain. He understands what we walk through because why? He dwelled among us. He lived the life that we live. And I think in verse 7, God's also like, listen, um, if I wanted my house to be built down there, David, it wouldn't be you. It wouldn't be built with human hands. And in fact, it's a misunderstanding of who God is. Isaiah 66 talks about God and his nature. It says that, that literally his throne is the heavens and the earth is his what? Footstool. Think about that. Like, and again, I know that, that David understood that this was for the presence of God and not for like literally all of God himself, but it's a little bit presumptuous to go, God, I'm gonna build you a house. And God's like, the whole earth is my footstool. It's for my feet, and you think you're going to build me a house and do me a favor? Because you have to understand my nature. I'm bigger than that, and I'm, I'm actually more incarnational than that. I'm, I'm with my people. And so it's not just the nature of God that God is trying to get David and Israel and Nathan and us to understand, but it's also his heart. And this is verses 8 and 9. I want you to see this with me. He says, David, look at this. I took you from the pasture from following the sheep. I took you, God said, from just way out in the middle of nowhere, following sheep around, an unknown figure, and I took you in to be and called you and anointed you to be the prince, the king over my people. David, you didn't do anything to deserve the position you're in. You see that? That this is not just the nature of our God that he's incarnational, but the heart of God that he operates on a whole different, mo other, different mode. And it's this mode, the mode of grace. David, you didn't earn your victories in battle. 
David, you didn't earn the position that you have been given. And so this idea that you will build a house or do something for me, David, I'm afraid that you have forgotten that I'm a God of grace. What does grace mean? Grace, grace is in its most basic definition is this, is the unmerited or unearned favor of God. You see, David, I'm afraid in this uh, section of scripture is actually importing ancient or cultural thinking. You see, for ancient kings, here's what they would do for their lowercase g gods. They would build them houses. They would build them temples. And they would build these elaborate, beautiful, beautiful structures. And then in turn, their gods would in turn bless their kingdom. They would bless their kingship. The Lord is going, David, I want to make sure to purge out any of that cultural narrative, that cultural thinking that you may have to think that if you build me a house that I'm going to be so impressed by, then you're going to get my favor. Then you're going to get my blessing. God goes, that's not how it works. I called you as a shepherd to lead my people, that you didn't earn that. You aren't qualified for this. I want you to understand my grace in a deep deep way. Don't you dare for a moment think that if you do something good for God, then he will do something good for you. Listen, that's, that's not Christianity. That's not consistent with the God of the Bible. In fact, that's something called karma, right? Good comes back around. And can we just pause here? Many of you, that, that's, that's how you operate. That if I do something good for God, then this will this will mean good for me. He'll, he'll bless me now. Listen, that's a, that's a worldly idea. That's, in fact, an idea that stands opposed to the nature and character and heart of our God. This idea that divine blessing is somehow achieved conditionally. I love what um, Tim Keller, he said, he says this, with the God of the Bible, divine blessing is always received unconditionally. The totally opposite of what we see here with David. Unlike all of the other gods of culture, it's not just the opposite. It's opposed to all other religions. And that is why God is trying to show David and Nathan and Israel and us in saying, no, you will not build a house for me. He's trying to show us his true character and his true nature. God is telling David, I'm not going to let you build a house because I don't want you to think that this God of the Bible is just like or operates just like any other religion in the world. It doesn't. Our faith and our God stands unique. It stands all alone as a God who is truly incarnational, as a God whose heart is truly full of grace toward his people. And so David his good intention, his good promise, God, let me build you a house. And God shuts the door. But God, in verse 11, has a counter promise. Right? So you have David's good idea. The Lord shuts it down. God goes, I have a better plan. A plan that is going to display my heart, my, na my nature, my character. David, I'm going to build you a house. What? He's like, oh, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. God's like, oh, this is cute. This is really cute. You don't understand who I am. So I want you to understand who I am. So here's the promise. You think you're going to build me a house. I will build you a house. Can you imagine just what David's ears and heart was thinking when he heard this from Nathan, right? 
He's like, what do you mean? And, and, and here's what we have to understand, that David's promise to God, right? This cute little promise, this, 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 this good little idea. I promise to build you a physical structure, right? Out of cedar, all these things that's going to be beautiful. God is going something so much deeper in verses 12 through 16. Look at it in your Bible to David. I promise to build you a house. And he's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about a line. He's talking about descendants. He's talking about David's dynasty. And here's what's crazy, all right, church? Here's what's crazy, is that he says about this dynasty in verses 12 through 16, that it will go on forever, to channel my inner sandlot, right? Like, forever! It's going to go, there will be no end. Isaiah 9 said the same thing. There's going to be no end to this house. And in fact, there's going to be things that you think are going to stop this promise. And, and, and listen to what they are. Death, sin, and time. Those three things. God's calling his shot, going, listen, you're, you think these three things are going to stop it. And they won't. Some of you don't believe me. Look at the text. You're like, that's, that's too connected to Jesus. It all connects to Jesus. Right? In verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's going, listen, David, even with your death, it's going to continue on. Death can't stop it. Uh-oh, here we got a problem in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. Wait a minute, I thought this was about Jesus. And the one thing I know about Jesus is that he was perfect, that he was sinless. You see, when you read these prophecies, there's an immediate and then there's a long term. The immediate here is that, David, you're not going to build my house, right, here on earth. But there is someone from your line, Solomon, David's son, who will build the house, the physical structure for the Lord because he commands it, because he asks for it, Okay. And so when it talks about iniquity here, it's not talking about Jesus' iniquity. It's talking about Solomon's iniquity. So what the Lord is doing here in prophecy is he's going, listen, even the shortcomings, even the failure of your son Solomon, who will build my house, isn't going to stop my promise to you. Isn't going to stop the line of David from running straight to the Messiah. And then he goes on to say, and I will establish this kingdom or this throne forever. Time will not stop it. How in the world is that possible? How is it possible that David's line would go on forever? Here's how that's possible. Because one of David's descendants will not just have an earthly kingdom. You see, that's where our minds and our eyes fall. One of David's descendants will have an eternal kingdom. And a kingdom that will have no end. You see, if this is a promise simply for Solomon who builds the temple, we've got real problems, right? But this is pointing to something deeper. A son of David, born in David's hometown of Bethlehem, the one who would establish the real, the fulfilled temple, the one who says this temple will be torn down and rebuilt in three days. Who said that? Jesus. The one whom after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells where? God, the Holy Spirit, dwells where? In us, 
right? Where Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 would say, then now you are what? Full of the Holy Spirit. You are God's temple. You are God's tabernacle. You are the place where God dwells. And so David thinks he's bringing this good idea. He's bringing this promise before the Lord. And the Lord, as he always does, totally flips the script and says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. One that will go on forever and ever, where my glory and my name will be known, where my Messiah, the Savior, the one you're anticipating, the one you're hoping for, will come. And then the rest of the chapter is David's response to that from God. And if you notice in uh, the verses that I just covered, and maybe even this week it'd be good for you to go back and, and read them again. Notice the number of I will statements. At least 10. God going, I will. I will. I will. I will do this. I will establish. Right? And so David going, Lord, this is all on you. You're going to do this. And then from verse 18 all the way to the end, essentially is David just standing in awe of who God is. Standing in awe of of, of the promise God has just made to him. Listen, David understands himself. David understands his heart. But most of all, he understands the God who just made a promise to him to say, I will establish my rule and my reign. And David, it's coming through you. Not because you've earned it, but because of my grace. You see, here's one of my fears as a pastor. Um, we have an opportunity every time we open this book to stand in awe of God. That same God that you will see David here. Listen to the first words out of David's mouth in verse 18. Then the king, King David, went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Much making my kingdom last forever. Who am I that you would bring me this far into this house? There's this reverence, there's this awe. And here's one of my my fears as a pastor, is that we come into a place, even a gathering like this, where we open the pages of scripture and we kind of yawn at the glory of God. We yawn at the truth of God and the promises of God that he has fulfilled in Christ Jesus toward us. We're like, oh yeah, that's really good. He's holy. Oh, he's been so good to us in his son. What's for lunch? Like if you see David here and the rest, his response is so appropriate. He goes, may I magnify you. May my life be lived for your glory. Lord, I was mistaken. I thought I was doing things for you. Now I realize who you are, and I can only do things through you. Why is David at his best when he's inquiring of the Lord? Because he's dependent. He's where he was designed to be, working through the Lord, not for him. That's why the Lord puts the brakes on this thing. You're not going to build me a house because, David, I want to show you something so much deeper. I want to show you my glory. I want to show you what I'm all about. May the Lord awaken us to his beauty and his promises. And David, what he does here, and again, I want, I want you to read it this week. He just prays back to God, essentially, what God has told him through the prophet Nathan. If you will look at it and you, you, you read it, read the first part, read the second part. David is essentially repeating back to God his own words. This is a good practice for Christians. This is a good practice as believers to pray back to God his word, not because God has forgotten his word, right? But rather, we have forgotten his word. 
that we're reminding the God of the universe, we're not reminding him because he's forgotten, we're reminding our hearts about what the God of the universe has said. Many of you get debilitated, like, I want to make sure I know I'm praying in line with God's will. Here it is. You can't miss it. Use God's own words. That's what David is doing here. Lord, you've said this. You're going to establish. You're faithful to do this. God, may your name be magnified. And I'll tell you also what it forces us to do is to actually understand the promises of God. The true promises of God. Not the things in Scripture that we think are the promises of God, that God didn't say as promises, but the real promises of God. Did God ever promise a life free of stress or issues or struggles or pain? Did God ever promise that? No. What does he promise? Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what you're walking through, no matter what struggle, no matter what stress, no matter what triumph you're walking through, I'll never leave you. That's really good news, right? Or how about John 16, 33? In fact, Jesus himself says this, in this, in this world you will have trials and tribulations, but where's the promise? After, take heart, I've overcome the world. So we go, Lord, I'm walking through this. God, I'm praying back to you your word. You will never leave me. You're not forsaking me. Lord, you've overcome the world. Jesus, you have overcome all of this for your glory. And you're here present with me. In verse 21, look at it in chapter 7. It says, because of your promise, right? God's promise to David and thus to us, I will build you a house. I will bring a Messiah through your line. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all of this greatness to make your servant know it. I love that. David goes, you have done all of this. You have made this great promise so that your servant might know it. What is it? Well, read the next verse. Therefore, you are great. That's the line. That you might make your servant aware of your greatness. That you might make your servant aware of who you truly are. Of your grace, of your mercy, of your love, of your holiness, of all that you are. That you are great. And listen, when we get a hold of that, then we can live not just doing things for God, but doing things through God. That's the difference. It's like David is getting flashes of this right now. You are great. So let me ask and let me end here. What is meant to stand out about our lives as Christians? What is meant to stand out about our lives? What was meant to stand out about David's legacy and his dynasty and his kingship? Was it that he built a house for God and everybody applauds and says, man, David is great. No, God's going, I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you guys to confuse who I am. What's meant to stand out about our lives? God's greatness, God's glory, his presence, his salvation that comes through Jesus. This is Ephesians chapter 2, right? You know, you know the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, right? It, it talks about how we are saved by grace through faith alone, no works of our own, right? Unmerited, unearned. What's the reason for that? Paul tells us, right? So that you don't boast because he knows our human nature. But then in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, here's what it says. For we are his, meaning God's, workmanship. Okay, we've been redeemed. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, you know that line? For good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if you're not careful, what could happen, even in 2 Samuel chapter 7, is this, is that God just let David off the hook from doing anything. Oh no, you've, you've mistaken what's taking place here, if that's your view. You've mistaken grace, if that's your view about your life, Christian, right? Ephesians 2 tells us this, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, right? To do what? Good works through him. So listen, as we, are, as we live our lives as people who have been redeemed by Christ Jesus, no, no works of our own, there will be good works. There will be works that flow from us. James puts it like this, that faith without works is dead, right? Because a true saving faith, a true understanding of the nature and character of God, a true understanding of a God that is full of grace, demonstrating his grace in Jesus Christ to us, will understand that our lives are now lived in complete surrender and devotion to him. But sometimes, when we bring our good ideas before the Lord, he might say no. He might go, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to go there. And you're going, you don't want me to move to Uzbekistan, right? You don't want me to... To, 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 to bring in um, these people, or you don't, you, God, what, what are you doing? Like, this, this doesn't make any sense. What, what are you doing? And God goes, come here. There are times where I might say no so that you understand my heart more deeply. Because in you saying yes, and you doing this, and you having these good ideas, sometimes, sometimes, and I know I fall into this category, sometimes we forget to see David at his best. We forget to be David at his best. Inquiring of the Lord. There are other times, listen, where God might say no. There might be other times where God ordains failure. You ever been there? Those moments in your life where you're like, Lord, I thought I heard from you. Lord, I, I, I know I did. I heard from you. But now I'm moving back from the mission field. Now I, this is not going as I thought. Lord, this thing is completely shut down. It's over. What's going on? And the Lord is going, listen, Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways. What you see as failure is not failure. What you see as something that, that appears to be just in mess and disarray is something that I have sovereignly ordained because my ultimate purpose is to show you my character, my nature, and my heart, and my love toward you in Christ Jesus. And listen, believers, there are many times, though, where the Lord is going, yes, go, do this, run. But are we inquiring of the Lord? Are we coming before him, seeking his will in all things? Have we asked this God who is, is among us in the Holy Spirit, Lord, what might you have of me? What do you desire for my life that has been changed and transformed by your grace and by your mercy? And some of you are going, I, I can't hear from him. I can't hear anything. I, I'm, I'm in the scriptures. I'm in prayer. What did we learn from David earlier on? Be patient. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Keep asking. And so um, we're going to go into a time of communion here where we're going to take the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this is a moment where we as a church family respond to the word of God. Kids, this is where we ask of the Lord. Lord, how do you want me to apply this? How do you want me to see your character and your nature more fully? 
God, how do you want me to live in light of this text? What are you calling me toward? What are you calling me away from? Lord, how is my life incongruous with the Savior that I profess? For some of you, though, however, it's not about you understanding the direction God is leading you and drawing you in your life in terms of obedience. It comes to that first step of obedience. That this God who made the same promise to David fulfilled it in Christ Jesus. The very God-man who put on flesh to dwell among us, who died upon the cross to defeat death, who rose from the grave to secure our salvation from sin. That for you this morning, it is actually putting your trust in him and not in your self-saving efforts. Not in you pointing to your spiritual resume of what you've done for God. God goes, listen, my love for you is unearned. It's unmerited. You could never earn it in a million lifetimes. It's the free gift of salvation. That the Bible says that when our hearts are drawn to the Lord, we will confess our need and will turn from our self-saving ways. Some of you, you have been running on the treadmill of religion for so long and you're exhausted. And this morning, this morning, the word to you is this, rest and trust in Jesus. Matthew 11, I think of Jesus' words there, come to me, all of you who are what? Worn out, worn out. And Jesus goes, and in me, you'll find rest. You see, David had rest from his enemies, meaning military battle. Jesus provides a deeper rest for our souls. And he stands and he offers that to each and every one of us again this morning. I love coming to this time every week together where we're confronted with the reality and depth of our, our need but the greater depth of God's love. We come face to face with it. God literally gives us tangible ways to see and taste his love, his goodness, his salvation, his redemption through Christ Jesus. And so let me tell you, this is a meal of, of worship and invitation that Jesus would invite anyone who would trust in him to come and partake to share in his broken body and shed blood, to work through him for the glory of God, that God might be magnified. You know what that means? To be made large. Listen, that's what we want a watching world to see in our lives and in our church. It's not the name of an individual or individuals or the name of a church. We want God to be glorified, that he would slide the magnifying glass of heaven over and that he might be seen for who he is. Glorious. A God who loves, a God who is completely other, a God who is among his people. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it and he said, church, disciples, this is my body broken for you. And so we do this in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus Christ. In the same night and manner, Jesus took the cup 
And this might make even more sense after 2 Samuel 7 this morning. He took the cup and he said that this is the new covenant, the new promise, the promises of the old, the ones made to Abraham, and the one made to David about his line is now fulfilled, Jesus says, in me. This is the new covenant, the way of salvation, Jesus says is in me alone. And so we raise the cup of salvation that represents Jesus's blood and we take it together. In church, the only fitting response after taking communion is what? Worship. Let's worship right now in prayer. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the one who fulfills all of the promises perfectly, that he is our king of a kingdom that is coming, Lord God. And so, Lord, we put our faith, we put our trust in him. And, Lord, I pray that this week we might live in light of the grace we have been given in him. And so, Father, give us the faith to live those kind of lives truly for your glory, not just lip service, but lives for your glory. I love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Now may we go in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.